Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first event of the 2017 Ledbury Poetry Festival. <laughs> Yay! I'm glad to see we're starting in the right spirit. This is a celebration of 21 years of wonderful poetry. Um, I'd like to start, first of all, by thanking our major sponsors, as always, Arts Council England. So I'm Brenda Reed brown I'm a festival trustee, I'm also a poet, and I'm your host for this event. And what an event it is. We're going to finish with some established poets who are the lifeblood of our annual festivals. Before them, though, we're going to have some poets who have achieved success in the Foyle's Young Poets Prize. The Foyle's Young Poets have been appearing at the festival for as long as I can remember. We very much like to support emerging poets, and it's a delight to us that these young people have started to make names for themselves. However, the festival prides itself on supporting poets at all stages of their poetry careers. And this includes a lot of work with schools. I've been working recently as poet-in-residence at John Macefield High School, which is just up the road here in Ledbury. And we're going to start with some pupils from the school. Now, I've had about three hours with these young people, so obviously they are right at the beginning of their poetry lives. Um, but we thought that this combination of right from, uh, from beginners to um, emerging poets and established poets would show the range of what Lebri Poetry Festival does, and it would be a, an excellent way to celebrate our 21 years and the way we've been delighting people with poetry over all this time. So, can I ask you first, we're going to bring the young people up in, in groups, so can I ask you to welcome our first group of young poets from John Macefield High School, Amelia Farnell, Millie Clayton, Natasha Bloom and Ella Bevan. My sonnet. If Shakespeare wrote a play about today, or one about a world that he once knew, I wonder what that Shakespeare play would say. Would it consist of things that once were true? Around the world, all people would perform. Could it be called a modern history? And would he write it in a brand new form? Sadly, all this is still a mystery. But what if Shakespeare did not like it here? In this a world that we have changed a lot. And would he miss the ones that he held dear? Would loneliness affect his brand new plot? Unfortunately, Shakespeare's not with us, and so I must conclude this sonnet thus. Ragtime blues. The soft thud in a repetitive rhythm, like footsteps on crisp, dense snow. The colour of a zebra flying in a blur, the best companion of many treated with respect. Strange secrets kept in different languages. Emotions pouring out like a sponge with too much water. A two-faced friend you can change at any moment, but only you can change how it feels. I am old with dulling colours. My black turned into grey, my white into a mellow yellow. Grease smeared and splattered along with me like the chip shop counter. My voice is cracked and ragged with the years people use me. I no longer shine pure white. I no longer sound in tune. I no longer am used as I was before. I no longer am used at all. (laughs) 
Misfit. My life is like butterflies, beautiful and complex and trusting on one side. On the other, dull, plain and lies. When faced with small problems, most humans hide, whilst butterflies are free to fly. It was hard being a misfit, being bullied, laughed at and being made to take the blame. Most people didn't see it, but it hurt all the same. So on my own, I had to stand and take the hits. Until the day she came over and said hi. At first I thought she was another hater, but once the first few seconds were over, she introduced herself and we became friends later. And then after that, we became best friends. That girl, she changed my life. Caitlin, multiple evenings spent talking for hours on end. We spent all our time in your room. I noticed every object that had moved. I suppose that's why it felt so strange to come back. Paperweights, cuddly toys and posters scattered the floor, although most of your things are gone now. Everyone needs something to remember you by. I chose our two black cats, the ones we laughed about and said were us, because all they did was sit and chat. Well, actually, I suppose I sat and you lay. I miss our evenings, conversing about hobbies, gossiping about people from school, even though you can't go to school anymore. You're unable to perform the way you used to, only acting with your voice, monologue after monologue. You amazed me. I felt as though we could have talked forever. Nothing lasts forever. You're gone now, but never forgotten. And the second group is uh, Lucy French, Leona Peggs, Izzy French and Rebecca Carney. Can you please come up? Snow. It's snowing. White flakes of cremated skin and pale droplets that leave a sour aftertaste of human error and mistakes and a second helping of bullets and bombshells with flames and dark fire as a dessert. She stands there, no clothes, bare and burnt away, a fleeting image of vulnerability, her feet gouged into charred tarmac while limbs were set solid in concrete. Iced over eyes watched with sharp machines that fired target-trained bullets. Her expression vacant, but we reread, reblog, forward, reshare an electronic flash of sympathy delivered in the shape of a blood-red heart. D is for disease. Left, abandoned on the rails, pink liquid squirting out, gone, forgotten by the owner, dumped onto the rails of London. Every time you walked past, a new gust of wind blew in your face, forcing you to smell its putrid disease. It might have been small, but it was deadly and furious, furious that we had won the battle. Or so we thought. Every day now it wipes out another town or village. Everyone dead, not one survivor, except me.
The deafening silence echoed around the deserted field. Blood-bathed flower petals ruptured the corpse-littered ground. Shrapnel dug deeper and deeper into a never-ending pit of despair. Death. The metallic taste of blood splattered the air's sweet aroma. Cloud tears exploded desperately in appraise. Death. No more shrill shell screams. No more lifeless eyes staring into the infinite sky. No more war. No more death. What your sound does to me. I long to hear your elegant sound echoing through the faded, tattered wood, yet your sound does not differ from the sound long ago. The sound is as beautiful as a hummingbird's song. Even a mistake makes it sound like an innocent ripple dancing across the lake. I like to think of you as a friend, someone to rely on. You comfort me in the darkest times, yet your heart lies in the beating keys creating a sound in which each note matters. I wish to play on your little black and white keys, like a long row of angels spreading out their wings. You create a feeling inside me that I've never felt before. My body fills with warmth, inspiration, desperation, for your sound once more, but your sound doesn't come, even if I tap your keys. Your heart has stopped. And finally, we have Lolly Rennick and Evie Grinnell, who will be performing together, followed by Katie McCabe, Dominic Arnold and Lizzie Austin. Lost. Dark. The light is blinding. Head spinning. Senses alert. Barely breathing. Heart beating fast. Silence. Whispers in the blue. The scurrying mouth. The swooping owl. The rustling leaves. The crashing stream. Rain. No. Sweat. Trickling down my face. My neck. My leg. Harsh ground. The ground. Swallowing me whole. Here. There. Gone. gone. Rosie. Black as night, with eyes as yellow as a summer sunset. Tongue like sandpaper, licking away its silk fur. And a soft thud of memory foam as her feet hit the carpet. An outdoor scent still lingers on her fluff. Over time, a dark russet, making its way to twilight, and her perky black nose, sniffing around the room. I hid the treats behind the telly. Clean paper, pen and empty mind, I sit and rest my chin and think of all the great things in life that could help my poem begin. Smile, space, animals and more might stop this ode from being a bore. Deleting lines and changing words, my head is full of flapping birds. I usually have great ideas, but when put to paper they turn to tears. I have an idea and start to write, but something just doesn't feel quite right. My fingers fiddle with my pen. Oh, no, sorry. I rub it out and start again. My fingers fiddle with my pen. I ask my mother for inspiration, but she just gives me constipation. <laughs> so I get up and start to pace, wondering if thoughts will find their place. Words slowly then start to trickle in, but half end up thrown in the bin. 
But as I write my opening lines, I find words then start to rhyme. The words are flowing, gushing and blowing, my poem is picking up pace. I write down words formed into herds, we're suddenly on for a race. It's nearly bedtime, got to go, but this poem of mine started to flow. And as I write my finishing verse, I read back through and begin to rehearse. I dot each I and cross each T and Google what could rhyme with me. I need to find a title to fit. Hmm, not on earth shall I call it. For Andy, I was always the wordsmith that you wrote your poetry with your hands, crafting shapes of songs tangible only through cochlear implants. You showed me spelling with fingers, how meaning could always be found, proving noise wasn't necessary. As you sing to me, sans the sound. You taught me the danger of pity, how it creeps, taunting your mind. Innocently spoken words, people think they're only being kind. Your speech was joints and knuckles, and to all, it's plain to see through looking at your movements, that, as deaf, you're perfectly happy. I'm very tempted to say, follow that. <laughs> Weren't they great? Thank you very much, all the pupils from John Maysfield High School. You were terrific. Um, I should like to mention that um, following uh, Lizzie's poem with the signing that we do have an event of signed poetry in the festival next Saturday um, and it's called, I can't read my writing, um, Air Poems in the Key of Voice and that's uh, next Saturday 8th of July so do come along, it should be a really interesting event. So now we have our three young poets who started to make names for themselves through the Foils Young Poet Competition. Um, we're going to start with Richard Osmond, who was a winner in 2005. Richard Osmond's debut collection, Useful Verses, is just out from Picador. It follows in the best tradition of nature writing, being as much about the human world as the natural and about the present as the past. Richard is a professional forager, I'd like to have, have you around my house. Um, and he has a deep knowledge of flora and fauna as they appear in both natural and human history. But he views them through a wholly contemporary lens. Please welcome up Richard Osmond. Hello. Um, the book's called Useful Verses, and I'd just like to fend off the first question I always get, which is, how is poetry useful? Uh, there are a lot of charms and spells in this book that I've translated from Old English that can help you in your everyday life. And so there's, there's one to get rid of a, a pimple. There's, there's one to protect you from the dwarf that sneaks into your room and rides you around while you're sleeping. Uh, but this one is called A, <laughs> a Cure for Lunacy. If a man is moon mad once a month, take a porpoise from the sea, make the skin into a whip, whip him with the whip upside the head until he snaps out of it. 
Okay, this one is called The New Zodiac. The mouse fears the cat. The cat fears the dog. The dog fears the man. The man fears the wolf. The wolf fears lightning. Lightning fears nothing. Nothing fears a child. The child fears the clown. The clown fears the ringmaster. And ever since the incident, the ringmaster fears the elephant. The elephant fears the mouse. (laughs) That she lived is now in the category of things that are true, but may as well not be. We kissed only as Venus turns clockwise, or huckleberries of a state fruit of Idaho. Um, (laughs) So... I'm going to leave the book behind now and actually do something that I've been working on more recently. Uh, I was translating some of Beowulf. I was working on the bit where Grendel comes and attacks the beer hall while everyone's drinking in there. And then I was on a stag night on the 3rd of June uh, in London Bridge and got some first-hand experience of what it's like to be drinking in a place that comes under attack and... In many ways, Grendel was the first terrorist. Um, So this is, I just kind of worked in some kind of personal thoughts on that experience into the translation of Beowulf. So here there are scattered bits of my own poetry, bits of uh, the Old English in translation and uh, fragments of the Quran translated as well. This is very much a work in progress, but I don't know... Seemed like a good time to to try it out. So um, I'll just start with a couple of lines in the original Old English just to give you a bit of flavor, and then I'll go straight into it. Grendel kom gangan under mistleutum, goddess urbar. Grendel came creeping under cover of mist, bearing the full wrath of God on his shoulders, a reaper come to snatch a handful of mankind. Through the fog, he saw the beer hall lit up in bright gold before him. This was not the first time he had found his way to Hrothgar's house, but never before had he met such hard luck or hard men, such tough luck or tough men. The doors, despite being reinforced with forged iron bars, burst open at the touch of the miserable one's evil-meaning hands when he tore in fury at the mead hall's mouth. Sand. I'm playing on the beach in Galveston with Luke, who is four. We build a castle, then we build a turtle and a tuna fish chasing the turtle and a whale about to swallow the tuna fish and turtle, and then Luke builds a car crashing into the whale. Stories told in sand are clearly not beholden to the classical unities, nor obliged to be consistently either comic or serious in tone. Anything can collide with anything at any time, as in life. Herring gulls want to eat our Cheez-Its. A van plows into pedestrians on London Bridge. I use a piece of string to give the turtle a silly smile. Luke laughs at this. Someone pulls a brown blanket over a corpse in Borough Market. A din disrupted the high hall. The city dwellers were as dismayed as city dwellers are when real and hearty ale gets swapped for the figurative bitter beer of despair. The air echoed. 
It was a wonder the beer hall walls didn't buckle, but they were rigidly reinforced with iron girders and stood firm, though the long benches were ripped from the floor and overturned. Rock, paper, scissors. Eight hours into Rob's stag, which had started strong with a pub crawl up the Bermondsey beer mile and was now beginning to sag at a Weatherspoons near Tower Bridge, a match of rock, paper, scissors was breaking out to pick between the following two options for what to do next. One, we'd go to Katzenjammer's authentic German beer keller under London Bridge where we would listen to an umpar band eat sauerkraut, drink liter steins of Paul Anna Dunkel, and, though we didn't know it yet, be held in the basement by police for our own protection as terrorists attack the door outside, see bloody victims hurry down the stairs to shelter in the bar, watch paramedics treat slash wounds to the throat and stab wounds to the stomach and slash and stab wounds to the throat and stomach and hear a woman sob and hyperventilate because of what she couldn't bring herself to tell us she had seen up there on street level and take cover under the traditional wooden benches when armed officers burst in with automatic weapons yelling, down, get down, get down, or two, we go to a strip club. The game began. Martin and Matt competing. So it's one, two, three, go, and play on go. One, two, three, go. Both guys threw down scissors first, a cutthroat opening gambit. One, two, three, go. Both changed tack dramatically and went for paper. All bets were off. One, two, three, go. They cast their final shapes. Martin, for the beer bar, unwittingly allying himself with terror, stuck fatefully with paper, while Matt, solidly in favour of the strip club, chose rock and lost. The decision had been made, and I dwell on it for bathos. The world is made of games of rock, paper, scissors like this one. Not only in the sense that every flip and arbitrary decision has unforeseeable and permanent results, but in the sense that every gesture, either of victory or defeat, aggression or surrender, depends for its meaning on another. Look here, a photograph of Matt's third and losing move viewed in isolation would appear to show a man raising his fist in anger about to throw a punch. Only those who knew the game of signs he was playing at would read the hand as rock. And still the ideogram would be illegible without a further layer of context since by the rules of Rochambeau, rock is capable of signifying strength or weakness or indifference depending on the gesture chosen to oppose it. We called an Uber to take us to London Bridge. The evil one advanced angrily over the beer hall's flagstone floor. A sick flame flickered in his eyes as he surveyed the band of men sleeping there together, and his heart leapt at the thought of severing each man's soul from his body one by one. He foresaw for himself a feast of human meat that night, and he was right, but fate had it that th this feast would be his last. The beast did not delay. He took the first opportunity to seize, slash, and slay a sleeping man. He bit into the sinews which bound his bones together, drank the blood, and gulped down great gobs of flesh. Soon he had swallowed the whole dead human, even his feet and hands. Having drunk beer, men make promises somewhere between idle boast and solemn oath. 
words which must be honored all the more for having been sworn half cut. The battle blokes bet each other over beer steins that they would stay put and await the attack knives out. The morning after the attack, the mead hall was gore splattered. Dawn revealed the long benches smeared with blood and I was a few brave friends the fewer. Sit down to eat, men. Obey your hearts. Uncork your thoughts and speak about our brave soldiers and their glory in war. Image. A nude-colored faux-leather women's high-heeled shoe strap unbuckled lying on its side in the middle of Southwark Street as police hurried us past the bodies. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, Richard Osmond. Um, and next we have Mary Ann Clark, who was commended in the Foyle Young Poets of the Year Award in 2012. Mary Ann studies English at Merton College, Oxford, where she won the 2016 Newdigate Prize. Her poems have since 2012 appeared in Ash, The Maze, The Kindling, Oxford Poetry, Iris Three, and several Emma Press anthologies. Please give a big welcome to Mary Ann Clark. Thank you very much. So the first poem I'll read is called At a Window in Late December. A shy frost, like a fox, has left a few footprints across the railway track. A tree draws in a breath of birds. Every time I write a poem, I forget how to do it. Please carry on. The tree breathes in a cloud of birds. Every time I say a prayer, I forget how to do it. The sun in clear shards from the near white sky. I press my eyes hard closed, and when I open them, there it is again, the cold, sharp, pointed brightness of the world. Um, and... The second one I'll read is called Song. River somewhere, hollow out the bridge, leaving the city dark. Come again? Leaving the city dark. Arch somewhere, hug your void, leaving a gap in the dark. Come again? Leaving a gap in the dark. A gap in the dark, leaving one in the city, one who has left a gap in the dark. There is one who, leaving, has left. The city, the meeting places bereft, has left a gap in the dark. And all the names on the map read wrong, and inside the wind the walls stood dumb, and the empty hands of the clock she wrung, she wrung her hands for the leaving one. A gap in the dark, leaving one in the city, one who has left a gap in the dark. And the bedsheet cannot be consoled of blue blank cold. She cannot be consoled of the gap in the dark, leaving one in the city, one who has left a gap in the dark. Leaving city dark, come again. One left gap, come again, come again, come again, come again. Um, and the next one is, um, sticking with the Old English theme, 
um, a sort of free translation of a very enigmatic um, old English poem called Wolf and Erdwatcher, and my um, version of it is called Wolf and Other Men. He is the crash. My people will crush him if he comes near. He's not the same. Wolf's on one island, I on another. That island is bound fast, bordered with wild. Land of the bloodthirsty. My people will crush him if he comes near. I'm not the same. My dreams danced along the paths of Wolf's way when one rain slowed him and another my heart. Then Mr. Soldier sidled up, smiling. Joy and hate splashed in the bay of his grip. Wolf, my wolf, my hope for you has made me sick. Your ocean-wide absence, my marooned mind, no, it's not because I'm hungry. Do you hear, Mr. Landlord? The wolf bears our whining whelp to the woods. That may be broken that was never bound. That may be sundered that was never soldered. The riddle of us. Um, and then this is just a, uh, an extract from the beginning of a longer, more narrative poem called Sinai. Even that night when we first set out, some of us were uncertain. I remember the air was thick like stifled crying, unsleeping, and the fearful houses shrank back, wanting us out of the city. We were distracted by the haste of it, grabbing at handfuls of still wet dough and Egyptian gold, untying and driving the drowsy cattle ahead. That night it felt like a dream, now like a legend. The cattle are long dead, the gold an encumbrance. After we'd walked for a day, our minds caught up with us, sweating. Some started to mention their beds and their rations, murmuring like locusts. So we told them the tricks of the pharaoh, a man I'd never quite met. We remembered the sneers of the taskmasters flickering into anger, remembered picking straw to make their bricks every day. My hands took only a matter of weeks to unlearn that aching, though my back never will now. Sleeping arrangements don't help. In those first weeks, we accustomed ourselves to discomfort. The distance we walked ahead to piss diminished, even the women. Our country is the space that spreads within our sight lines. The patched-up tents we pitch every night are our city. We once were the strangers. Now we're the only humans in view. And then finally, um, I'll read an ode that I wrote for my baby god uh, goddaughter on her christening. It's called For Eve. Again, addressee, patient hearer, gentle calling magnificat. You are each of this and that. A sob, a smile as big as your fist, the laugh you laugh at the wind in the trees. You are more, you are all, you are none of these. Sit close, sit close in my arms, Eve. Let's watch the people as they pass through this wood. Look, there are some people we know, Eve. Here, a woman with this voice, that voice. 
There, a man with these eyes, those eyes. A girl who ran where lightning struck. A boy who worked the railway track. And you are no more this than that. Artists, activists, writers, refugees. You are more, you are all, you are none of these. Well, Eve, I say, let's think for a while, you and I, here in the shade. But you know who you are, and you press a secret smile into somebody's shoulder, into mine, just so. And a woman we almost know throws a look over her shoulder and walks away through the waving trees. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to Mary Ann Clark. And uh, now, finally, in this section, we have Theophilus Quek, who was born in Singapore, and he's published four volumes of poetry, most recently the first five storms, which won the New Poets Prize in 2016. He's also won the Martin Starkey Prize and the Jane Martin Prize and was co-winner of the second Berfroir. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, you've never heard it. No, you've only ever seen it written down. Poetry Prize. Uh, he has served as president of the Oxford University Poetry Society and is currently co-editor of Oxford Poetry as well as chief executive assistant as, at Asymptote. It doesn't say what he does in the afternoons. Um, Theo, Theo was a commended young foil poet in 2010 and 2011. Please welcome Theophilus Quack. Hi, um, thank you. Well, I wasn't intending to read this poem at first, but uh, after Richard read his Bureau of um, Translation and about the London Bridge text, I decided to read this. It's called Westminster. Broken light, high water. Here and elsewhere, the cold thoughts of something beyond belief settling into movement. An unstoppable design lodges in the throat will not be sung. We fall on words made for other means. Visibility four miles, more clouds than sun. Within days, it seems, this injury will join the rim of that other deeper cut over which no scar can form. Unclean, unshut, as yet it gapes distinct, flesh wound, a loss, without name and yet no easier to reckon, its surface so bare of facts except the act of loss itself, no choice or distance, no motive, no face, no legend, a mere expense that holds the skin apart, no way to map a way to map the way. Lines open for interchange. The earth trembles, holds fast this steel heart, its brave circulation. Every safe passage, a jubilee. Who are they whose paths must cross at our deepest station? Already, without doubt, we have begun to fear and fear the upshot of fear, the lightning and then the storm. But darkness now, which passes for calm, a prayer for each morning that takes place unawares, the still scalding shower, the flights of stairs. Um, 
we are here at the 30th of June, and um, six days ago we marked uh, what will be for many a bittersweet anniversary, that of the Brexit vote. Um, and there is, I'm sorry for mentioning it, um, my deepest apologies. And there is not a poem, I mean, there's not a poet in this country, I think, who doesn't have a Brexit poem tucked up her sleeve. Um, so this is my Brexit poem. Um, but at the same time, it's not really a Brexit poem because there's too much pressure on poets these days to be topical. Um, so it's really a poem about my favorite birds, which are red kites. And I'm not sure how much you know about red kites, but they, they weren't always um, native to this country. They were persecuted for many years under, uh, by the crown. A price was put on their heads. Um, and year after year, the price increased until in the early 20th century, I'm sure Richard will back me up here, they were nearly extinct. And then in the year 1989, just as the Cold War was ending, as a symbolic gesture, red kites were reintroduced to the UK. Um, <clears throat> anyway, this is a Brexit poem. 24th June, 2016. No red kites over the field this morning. However hard I looked, I could not find a single cresting pair. Their high crosses, invisible as if unpitched from the grass. No dry swoop. No sounding, no clatter from mornings, fed sparrows rising in alarm, no hare's carcass eaten behind our wall, nothing astir, no courting on the fell in curious patterns, no stumbling display of swift shadows bending above the Y, no haunt, no song, only the heavens blue, graceless fire, and then as a ghost pursued across a moor, the hunting horn's burly cry, crucify, crucify, crucify. Um, it's harder and harder to uh, claim to be a young poet if one doesn't read at least one poem from one's phone. Um, so this is mine. Um, this is also a poem that I've never read out loud before, just for the very good reason that um, I put a finishing touches on it this morning. Um, for the last four years, I've lived in Oxford, and I'm about to leave Oxford. Um, and this, I was trying to find a way to reckon with, you know, living in one uh, city that I love for four years. Um, and I went, as most poets do, occasionally, for a haircut. Um, and this poem has acquired the, the punny name of Final Cut. Final Cut. Four days to leaving, he has his hair done, lets her cradle his head, Turn it from side to side. Behind each year, the slow blade moves, removes strands that have taken root of their own accord, tenacious, out of sight, secure in knowledge of their chosen plot. The pressure is just right, and so for a while, feet angled over the floor, he travels all alone in that uncertain room framed by the chair, lights, and finding the mirror too close, he closes his eyes, approximate the 13-hour flight between to and from, sun warming the earth just enough in sleep to set him on his way. Among the things he'll never fathom, this conspiracy of air, how a cold morning or an unexpected rain, so often making one city feel like another, might, given perfect conditions, transform into a river high above the rough surface of this sea level, waiting to lift or leave us. On cue, a draft enters the shop, sends his cut ends into heavy drifts and banks. No one watches, 
but he wonders if it is like a dance, which are coming and which are the going ones. And to continue the, the translation theme, I um, don't read Old English as well as my two colleagues, um, but I do read another very old language, which is Mandarin, Chinese. Um, and this is a translation of a young poet who's about my age, um, from Singapore, uh, who has written um, this poem. And his name is Gu Xingzi, um, or at least his, the pseudonym under which he writes is Gu Xingzi, which means lonely star. And this poem that he's written is called All That Time Gives. <clears throat> it starts with a quote from Milan Kundera. The only reason for literature to exist is to contain what only literature can express. All that time gives. One. Bury a petal in the mud. It won't put out new roots or branches, but will leave in the earth some time or memory waiting to foster another shoot of life. Cleanse a river. Purify it. It will stop sending silts downstream, but the water will give an unfinished history some reason to survive. Two. It never was a question of language, but of different bodies, different memories gathered in the islands dreaming. The currents are the same hot bloods of 30, 50 years ago. Warehouses by the river have turned into narratives exchanged across generations. There's a deep, unspeakable pounding that won't provoke tears, only sweat and a thirst for some new provocation. In our heart of hearts, whether kind or angry or high-minded or low, there's a shadow no river will erode. The moon still shows our innocence. When literature is no longer tangled with the task of learning language well, when literature is no longer just a storm in a teacup or stirring up trouble, when literature it's no longer about what we can or can't. We won't need the Great Wall, the Big Ben, the pyramids, not even our cathedrals or temples to throw us threads of inspiration. This patch of earth may never put forth flowers, never bloom in many colors. That would be hypocritical anyway. But as long as we carry a whiff of freedom, it will be enough to remain in the ground. And I'm going to end off with this poem called Moving House. Um, very soon I'll be moving home to Singapore, um, which is where I was born. And um, my parents, being very good Asian parents, have decided to move houses without telling me. Um, so not too long ago, they got the keys to me. I still have no idea what door they open. And there will be many discoveries, I'm sure, awaiting me when I get home. I was recently told um, that about four or five days ago, they finally bought a bed for my room, which is great because um, otherwise it's just, just boxes. Um, anyway, so this poem is called Moving House. It's about that slightly unsettling feeling um, of, of a place that you know and love being stripped of everything that you know and love about it, um, and suddenly becoming bare again, full of possibilities, but also um, strange. Uh, anyway, thanks very much for having me and all of us this evening. It's been great. Moving House. These are things that shake us in our sleep. Doors left open, drawers, the bare-backed chair that's still without a coat swivels gently, books in boxes, pictures taken down, squares of darker paint turned over to the sun, 
And above all, they're wiring undone the lights, glass tubes put away in plastic. Once is enough, the eye learns to plot all of this in each new habitation, recognize the empty rooms, joints, pivots, dimensions. Every house has a skeleton. While the body learns, it must carry less from place to place, a kind of tidiness that builds, hardens. Some call it fear of change or of losing what we cannot keep. Others, experience. Truth is, it has no name or station and only the weight we give. Old friend, I feel its steep tug again this evening across wire and lens as you show me the house, a bare continent. These are things that shake us in our sleep. Thank you. Thank you very much to Richard Osmond, Mary Ann Clark, and Theophilus Quack. And now we come to the final section of this uh, event, which is an amazing lineup of eight poets. Um, I've asked them to keep to five minutes each, so you know, shout if they go past that. Um, and we're going to hear from Jacqueline Safra, Tony Hoagland, Alison Brackenbury, Catherine Towers, Alicia Starlings, Thomas Lynch, Jen Hadfield, and Fiona Sampson. So we're starting with Jacqueline Safra. Uh, Jacqueline is a stalwart of the, Ledwood, uh, the Ledbury Poetry Festival Poetry Competition. She's been commended once, won the second prize once, and won the first prize as well. So uh, it's inspiration to everybody who enters. Um, she's got a new book out from Nine Arches called All My Mad Mothers, and there's going to be a performance of that with a live electronic soundtrack from Benjamin Tassie, and that's going to be on Sunday, the 2nd of July, at 4.15pm at the Baptist Hall. But before that, she's here now. So please give a welcome to Jacqueline Safra. Hello. I don't think I'm ever going to try and enter the competition again, because you know, I don't want to jinx anything. Uh, so I'm going to read uh, the second prize poem first and the first prize poem second. Um, ironically, the second prize poem was a few years after the first prize poem, so I don't know, but, you know, that should give you hope, really. Um, and I, I'd also like to say that I think the future of British poetry is in excellent hands. I don't think we've got any problems there. So this first poem is, uh, well, it's your kind of everyday story of student flat-sharing, um, I realised with a bit of a shock that it does have a rude word in it and the word begins with F and I'm going to try and remember not to say it and there'll be like a little pause just because I know teachers might get a bit upset. I don't know. <laughs> don't want to risk it really. So uh, There are two words in this poem you might need to know. One is Brenivin, which is a type of Icelandic vodka and the other is Hakari, which is putrefied shark, which is a speciality in Iceland. Some of you probably know that. Apparently tastes really terrible. My friend Juliet's Icelandic lover. He floated in through the window on an ice flow pissed as a puffin. I sheltered inside my flannel nightgown like a Victorian chaperone and trembled as he exhaled north wind into the room. 
While he wrapped you in reindeer furs, you begged me to stay close, whispered you found him repulsive, smelling, as he did, of Brenevin and Hakari. You shuddered at his ghost-white skin, his hairy face. He was a theatre director from Reykjavik, and you were prim and pretty with a modest acting talent and a long-term boyfriend who was perennially unaware. You were steeped in English waters with your permanent pearls and that neat way you had of sitting with your legs crossed as if to emphasise what lay hidden between them. And you listened through the soft and falling curtain of snow as he pronounced the reasons why you should with him and why the fat friend who'd never get a man should go back to her room before she broke her teeth with chattering and how you'd never tried a Viking, had you, Juliet? Never heard the word for in Old Norse. And still, I stayed because you asked me to. I even forgave you after I went home to London for a fortnight because of the pneumonia and came back to find you topless, glowing, perched on that blue-blue glacier wide enough to fill the narrow hall and the flat filled with the smell of him. Putrefied shark, sulphur, crowberry, and ice. And this other poem that won the prize in 2007, before I'd even had a collection out, um, is in this first collection of mine, The Kitchen of Lovely Contraptions. And um, this came about because um, my son had a friend who had the same birthday that he did, who died very tragically, very young. And it speaks to my actual preoccupation, ongoing preoccupation with motherhood, which is my second collection, All My Mad Mothers. Lambskin. Spring child, you turned up late and restless. For weeks you wouldn't sleep without a nipple in your mouth. Stupidly, I thought there could be nothing worse. Prop-eyed for nights on end, tethered to you, wakened hourly at the edge of madness. The lambskin rescued both of us. Your cries would muffle comfort in its fluff, the scent of talcum, sweat and baby sick, the simplified, miraculous outline of a small animal at rest, replete with mother's milk, too new for grass, a safe lining for your speechless dreams. This was your first turn away, my first longed-for hint of freedom from the tug and suck, I thought of it last March, lambskin, when we drove across the Severn Bridge past green pastures, your long limbs cramping in the back, the crunch of crisps, the crackled beat of iPod. I reached behind to bother you, touched your warm cheek, just checking on the way to the wake. No hurry now to let you go. There was the boy who shared your birthday, ashes scattered to the wind, his mother, father, knowing truly what the worst can be, knee-deep in sodden earth, distant in rising mist. There were lambs in the next field, brazen in the innocence of nudge and suckle, their stupid-eyed, impatient mothers, feeding at the very edge of spring. Thank you.
Thank you, Jacqueline Safra. Uh, next, we have Tony Hoagland, who has published seven books of poetry in the US and several with Blood Axe Press in the, U in the UK. In the US, he's received the Mark Twain Award, the Jackson Poetry Prize, the James Laughlin Prize, and the O.B. Hardison Prize. And now he's coming up here. I'm going to read two poems. It's so good to be here. <clears throat> this first poem is uh, about two people who are on an, a date and they've been to see a nature documentary before. <clears throat> this moment. It's called Romantic Moment. After the nature documentary, we walk down Canyon Road onto the plaza of art galleries and high-end clothing stores where the mock orange is fragrant in the summer night and the smooth adobe walls glow flesh-like in the dark. It is just our second date and we sit down on a rock holding hands, not looking at each other. And if I were a bull penguin right now, I would lean over and vomit softly into the mouth of my beloved. <laughs> and if I were a peacock, I'd flex my gluteal muscles to erect and spread the quills on my Cinemax tail. If she were a female walking stick bug, she might insert her hypodermic proboscis delicately into my neck and inject me with a rich hormonal sedative before attaching her egg sac to my thoracic undercarriage. And if I were a young chimpanzee, I would break off a nearby tree limb and smash all the windows in the plaza jewelry stores. <laughs> and if she was a Brazilian leopard frog, she would wrap her impressive tongue three times around my right thigh and pummel me lightly against the surface of our pond. And I would know her feelings were sincere. <laughs> Instead, we sit a while in silence until she remarks that in the relative context of tortoises and iguanas, human males seem to be actually rather expressive. And I say that female crocodiles don't, really don't receive enough credit for their gentleness. And she suggests that it is time for us to go to get some ice cream cones and eat them. Um, and this uh, second poem is about what uh, cell phones are good for. And it's called Long Distance. Then Kathleen said, listen to this. And she held the cell phone out into the humid Alabama summer night. And that little handful of technology finally paid for itself by broadcasting a special program from the Mason-Dixon Cricket Philharmonic playing their well-known epic fornication symphony number no. nine down among the slanting swampy pines. That was a great evening for Alabama wildlife and for the southern, southern bullfrogs too who were finally given the chance to speak to their relatives in Massachusetts but more importantly, 
it was a beautiful night for me because a warm infusion of my true life on earth passed through wireless wires into outer space, bounced off the brain lobe of some cold satellite to rejoin the earth, and I actually relaxed for a moment in the comforting, gently simmering broth of an auditory bullfrog cricket stew, which is one way to say nature, which is the only thing and only place in which we truly rest. Thanks. Thank you very much, Tony Hoagland. Next, we have Alison Brackenbury, who is well-known and well-loved in Ledbury and, in fact, anywhere else she goes. Her latest collection, Skies, was featured on Radio 4 and was chosen as one of the Observer's Poetry Books of the Year. Please welcome up Alison Brackenbury. Good evening. A very happy 21st birthday to Ledbury Poetry Festival. I would like to read three poems. The first is set not far from Ledbury, on a hill in Gloucestershire. But, fittingly, I hope, it was published in an Austrian magazine. The hill and the poem are called Norbury. I was almost hurled in the ditch for my first mad pony would switch from gallop to halt in one stride. Each ride he would swerve, fling me back to the deep tumbled gorge by the track. Dark beaches hung on each side. A hill fort, no life but its name, Norbury mapped Iron Age. The same June wind conjured sweat, Flies, of course. I soothe the tossed sun-bleached main down by the dyke, rough grave to the town, bones of child, wrecked fighter, horse. What are twenty years to hillwind? I trudge, horses outlived. I find the highest beach drought-struck. A rich crest springs, orange fungus. Its throat gapes to the war trumpet's long note. The lost leader's last lying, which tumbled us all in the ditch. Next, a short seasonal poem, also set close to Ledbury. Its subject is a familiar bird, which, sadly, now meets problems on migration. The poem's title is this bird's old English name, spelt C-U-C-U, cuckoo. Quick April's coolest voice, its cry came commonplace. On farms for 40 years, it flew to the same place. Droughts, shooting, leave it rare. Now June's hard rain is falling. So long, so late, so clear. 
Why is the cuckoo calling? Finally, a much safer means of transport. I wonder if you have a particular walk, which you always mean to do, but somehow never manage. Here is mine, set in Suffolk. I would like to dedicate this poem to Helen Dunmore, who died recently. Many of us enjoyed her appearances here in Ledbury. I knew Helen a little and value her poetry greatly. This final poem is called Shingle. Will I get to Thorpe Ness? Well, not today, since my feet clash the beach the other way. A young brown gull veers, pipes, its thin cry of distress. All the bright screams cry rain. A mermaid's purse, a black pouch lies, fish eggs that deep sea nursed. Vainly, I skim it back. Rain beats my nose and chin. In tall streets, low clouds press. Three swallows snatch, a gust, a breath, last fly. Small voices catch, land's end, storm's edge, whirl high. Far, far beyond, Thorpe Ness. Thank you very much, Alison. Uh, next, we have Catherine Towers, who has the best note I have ever seen in a biography. She is currently poet in residence at the Cloud Appreciation Society. Don't we all want this job? Um, she also works as an assistant editor at poetry publisher Candlestick Press. Her latest collection, which is called The Remedies, was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize, and her previous collection, The Floating Man, won the Seamus Heaney Centre Prize. Please give a big welcome to Catherine Towers. Thank you very much for that introduction. It's fantastic to be here, and um, in this very wonderful company, I'm just really overwhelmed by the wonderful poems we've been hearing from the young people. Um, when I knew that I was going to be reading at this event, it made me think back on my own poetry writing, and I realised that Ledbury had really been right at the start, and I used to come to the festival before I'd had anything published and when I was just first starting to write my own poems. And at the end of one festival, I got on the train to go back to Sheffield, and... Um, I sat in the same carriage as somebody who'd been reading at the festival, and when I got home, I said to my husband, I talked to a poet on the train. <laughs> so um, I thought I'd read one of um, my first, the first poems that I ever wrote that actually was a poem, and also something very recent, and then if I have time in the middle, I'll read something that relates to the evolving theme of translation. Um, this poem is about the discovery in the Ethiopian desert of one of our oldest human ancestors. First word. Bedded in gentle blankets of dust, you're dreaming pictures of water when the young anthropologist kneels at the unstrung code of your limbs. Three feet six, but no child, he thinks, 
you wear the constellation of your bones as lightly as millions of years in the dunes and let him caress with the pad of his thumb the ash from under your arm stroke your loosening thigh from its sprocket of knee finger and breathe the flown cage of your ribs and what of this locket of pre-verbal jaw which soon must vouchsafe your first word not wheel or fire but one you've just learned like desire Um, so this is my translation poem. It's a very um, elaborate explanation. I'll try and keep it simple. I wrote it um, when I'd been looking at a parallel text edition of French love poetry. And a parallel text is one in which on the left-hand page you have the original in the original language, and on the right-hand page the English translation. And I started wondering what it might be like for these two poems to be pressed up against each other for so long and how they might actually end up feeling about each other um, so I wrote a poem um, which somebody s recently told me is called Macaronic. I've no idea where macaroni might come in, but um, in which two languages sort of blend um, French and English. The poem's called Brise Marine. An original converses with its translation. I should say that uh, in the first section, it's the... Um, French poems speaking to the English translation, then the English translation replying, and at the end, the book gets to have a word. Verso. For years, we've been engrossed in this colloque sentimental. I suppose we must be soulmates. Centuries ago, hearing the voices of sailors singing far from land, I brought them to you on a salt breeze. Mon coeur, there's so much more I want to tell you. Come close, we'll do this seul à seul and whisper in a language no one understands. I wonder what you see in me, pale echo of your bracing amour fou. Il noyer, hope's farewell, life far beyond my speech. If there's anything to bind us, it's the ennui of shipwreck and a worn-out soul. These words where I dwell are merely figments of a mind. I would love you if I could, mon pauvre cœur, pauvre amoureux. Eavesdropper for years on this va-et-vient of love and amour rebuté, I know it all by heart. The sailor's hapless melodies, the tedium of endless passion. I go between the weathers of their languages, shivering to her froideur or burning in his heat. This limbo is a tricky stance. Je les aime tous deux, de tout mon cœur. I can't speak it without feeling. And I'll end with a new poem. Um, which I wrote after hearing on the radio that the composer, Sibelius, rather terrifyingly didn't write anything for the last 30 years of his life. So this is a poem about um, why we might not write and um, perhaps about the excuses we make for ourselves. Silence of Yarvin Pei. 
More than enough time did he spend looking up at the sky for the cranes flying from the potato fields of Serdafjerden, or looking for curlews in the marshes, birds that everyone knows are shy as flutes. Or perhaps there weren't enough days when the rain fell in slow breeves on the steep roof. Or perhaps Aino failed to keep out when most he needed her to and troubled his mind by so clearly hoping. Or perhaps the forest was too cool and spacious, or the birds of his youth would not come to the garden again. Or perhaps the ghost of the little girl was too much present when he sat in the room with the sill of identical geraniums. Or perhaps the pines leaned in too close. Or perhaps the smoke from his cigarette curled the wrong way. Thank you. Thank you very much, Catherine Towers. Uh, next we have A. Starlings. Alicia Starlings is an American poet who lives in Athens in Greece and her most recent collection is called Olives. Please give her a big welcome. Thank you. Um, well, actually, this is my first visit to Ledbury, and it's been a wonderful introduction to hear the young poets. I especially enjoyed the Shakespeare sonnet. Um, and it's wonderful. Uh, I have uh, to hear some people read whom I'm friends with on social media, um, Alison and Theophilus, um, to be able to meet them in person. I realize um, in the little short bio that... Uh, Athens, Greece sounds strange in England, of course, it's Athens, Greece, but in America you have to specify because it could be Athens, Georgia or Athens, Ohio. Um, so I'm going to read, uh, since I'm doing a reading tomorrow, I'm just going to read two short poems from Olives, and they are both called Olives. Um, obviously, Olives, emblematic of Greece, um, and I just love the word, it looks nice. Um, so this is the, the first Olives poem in the book, Olives. Sometimes a craving comes for salt, not sweet, for fruits that you can eat only if pickled in a vat of tears, a rich and dark and indehiscent meat clinging tightly to the pit, on spears of toothpicks maybe, drowned beneath a tide of vodka and vermouth, rocking at the bottom of a wide, shallow, long-stemmed glass and gentrified or rustic on a plate cracked like a tooth, a miscellany of the humble hues eponymously drab, brown greens and purple browns, the blacks and blues that chart the slow chromatics of a bruise washed down with swigs of barrel wine that stab the palates with pine sharpness. They recall the harvest and its toil the nets spread under silver trees that foil the blue glass of the heavens in the fall, daylight packed in treasuries of oil, paradigmatic summers that decline like singular archaic nouns, the troops of hours in retreat. These fruits are mine, small, bitter droops, full of the golden past and cured in brine. 
And um, so at the back of the book, there's also a poem called Olives, which is not in the table of contents, so you, you get that free. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I, see, I just wanted to, sh- you know, didn't want blurbs. Um, and I just love the word olives as well as the thing. Um, and I tried to kind of get the designer to make this. It's also O lives. Anyway, there's so many words that are contained in olives. So this is just an anagrammatic poem where I play with um, all the words that you can form with O-L-I-V-E-S. But I also cheat a little bit um, because I'm the poet and I can do that. <laughs> olives. Is love so evil? Is Eve low? Love vies evolves. I lose selves, sylphs of loose Levi's, sieve oil of vile slow. Love sighs, slives. O veils of wall, so sly, so suave. O lives, soil sleeves. I love, so I solve. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Alicia Starlings. Uh, next, we have uh, Thomas Lynch, who is the author of 10 books in three genres, po- poetry, essays, and short stories. For 45 years, he worked as a funeral director. He has taught at Wayne State University School of Mortuary Science and the University of Michigan Graduate Program in Creative Writing and Emory Emory University's Candler School of Theology. Amazing. Um, He keeps homes in Michigan and Moveen County Clare in Ireland. And welcome him up, please, Thomas Lynch. Well, I'm grateful for that um, tastefully hyperbolic introduction and Vaguely obituarial. It's so nice to hear (laughs) things said about you in the present tense and to be upright when you hear them. I have one poem, and I I was in Ledbury before any of you were born. It just gives me pause to, to think and say that. So thank you for those mighty poems you're after giving out with. We'll have many favorites, and we expect to be reading you forever and ever, so... Go and sin some more, I think, is the advice I want to give you. This poem is called To Be Among Those To Be Among These Elegant Voices. And I offer it in thanksgiving for all those voices and for the high honor of reading with so many people I've only read about before. So some of you know that uh, Peter Bruegel painted a bunch of country scenes festivals, peasants at their rest and excesses. And one of them, uh, a wedding dance in the open air, is housed in the Detroit Institute of Arts, which I beheld for the first time 50 years ago. And it changed my life. This image of the plump-faced peasantry, all knees and cod pieces dancing round someplace in Belgium, at a wedding I found among the bees in Artist European. The way the book is printed, 
How it's bound is a matter of indifference to me. I want what's in it. The thousand words worth on every page, the contemplation of its creator's life and times, the memory of the moment I first beheld it in Detroit at the Institute of Arts with that bookish girl I was trying to get, as we used to say then, biblical with. Was it 1970? Was it April? Was she as lovely as I remember? Was it, yes, that's it, oh, yes, she whispered, or have I confused her with another? But wait, the place is full of echoes now. Across the room, among the W's in English romantic poetry, Wordsworth is pacing out his iambic tune. The child is the father of the man. His footfall sounding in the garden's gravel while Keats and Coleridge proceed uphill. Or maybe it's that one word, biblical, that sets us rummaging through the scriptures. Job, that long-suffering protagonist, hapless, damaged, put upon by friends, Blessed be the name of the Lord, he yet insists in that vexing, God-awful, answerless book. It disturbed his people. It disturbs us still. Sometimes, says Alan Duggan in a poem, disturbed people go to poets' festivals. He's right, of course. Poems can make us crazy or give us hope or make us question things. What else but in a place like Ledbury, can we indulge our curiosities, imagination dancing in the round as one notion chases after others? This week the town's a kind of library with living voices rising into song. To be among these elegant voices can get you going off in all directions and get you back somehow from whence you came. Take this place, for example, all these choices, hobbies, reference books, biography, fiction, magazines, all these places, people, names, shelved and silenced alphabetically, some dead and gone, still singing all the same. Emily Dickinson, Mark Twain, James Joyce, who's Molly and Leopold, who's Huckleberry, who's after great pain a formal feeling comes become sweet fodder for our hungry minds or common guidance for our ruminations, timely as the moment we occupy. Today's the end of June. What else is new? Corrine and I have come to Ledbury. The world's supply of heartache is secure. There's love and hate and mayhem everywhere. We've come to dedicate some space to words, for poems, Visions and remembrances. It's good to look through windows on the world from a corner of a quiet place. Good to keep the records and corrected texts, histories and newspapers and ancient tracts of what we human beings were doing here. I was just browsing in American poets to find some good word for the opening, some verse by which to toast the poets here when I came across this poem called The Dance by William Carlos Williams, what it says about the tweedle of bagpipes, about a bugle and fiddles and rollicking measures and Bruegel's great picture of the Kermis makes me grateful for the things 
we find in books. The paintings of peasants dancing in Flanders, the poems on paintings and festivals, the books therein, the places where the books are read. Thank you. Thank you very much, Thomas Lynch. Uh, next we have Jen Hadfield, who lives in Shetland. Um, Jen publishes art books using liner-cut photography, woodwork, bookbinding, and fly-tying, which are called Rogue Seeds. But she, she also won a, an Eric Gregory Award in 2003 and the 2008 T.S. Eliot Prize for poetry for her second collection, Nine No Place. And please give her a welcome, Jen Hatfield. I think poems are made of, of words and silent words. Uh, at least I like poems that are made of words and silent words. Um, so I'm going to read you a very short one of mine, um, which is about... Um, the silent words, the things that you can't say but need to say. And one of my translations of uh, Bejan Matur's poems, um, whose uh, new collection we're launching in an event tomorrow morning. Um, so I'll start with my one. It's called Lichen. Who listens like Lichen listens? Assiduous millions of black and golden ears. You hear and remember, but I'm speaking to the lichen. The little ears prunk, scorch and blacken. The little golden mouths gape. Bejan is a, um, a Kurdish poet writing in Turkish. Um, she's beginning to write a little bit in Kurdish, but um, as so many people are, um, her, her, her Kurdish was persecuted as, as well as her people. Um, she writes a lot in, in this collection of poems that we've translated together about what you do when you don't have a language that is able to speak about what's happened to you. And this is a poem called I Know the Unspoken. It's, it's only about the third time I've ever said it in front of people, and I'm really aware of the responsibility in saying it. Uh, but I met Bejan for the first time earlier this week in London, and I got to hear her speaking her Turkish um, and that really helped me because they're quite hard poems to say in translation, uh, which is a strange experience because I sort of wrote the words in this translated language. Um, but Bejan speaks them quite fast and soft, so I thought, oh, well, I'll try that. And it works much better, actually. So um, I'm going to try and do that again and see if it works or not. It's kind of a work in progress, and the more time I spend with Bejan, the, the more I feel I know her poems. So it's it's really nice process. I know the unspoken. 
Now all my hope is invested in the mountain. It harbors possibility, maybe, an encounter. Maybe childhood's delicate soul is hidden on that mountain. I don't know where your smile lies abandoned or, or your unfinished stare. Your half-buried body betrays what has been done. Harm befell me when I looked back. I grasped the truth, the encounter's last gift, too late. Remember harvest time. Wheat as it fell to the blade, showing the world who we are. The poplars shivered that day. The air lifted with the joys of spring. I don't know what we talked about, but I know what was unspoken. It went astray in the rustling poplars. It was moving in our blood, the unspoken. But it's too late, so late that I will find no one, even if I climb the mountain. No night between us, nor fire, nor waiting. There is only a mountain. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Shen Hadfield. And finally, we have Fiona Sampson, who has been published in 37 languages and has received international prizes in the US, India, Macedonia, and Bosnia. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and she's received the Newdigate Prize, a Chubney Award, and multiple awards from Arts Councils England Wales, the Society of Authors and PBS, an MBE for Services to Literature, and she's twice been shortlisted for the Elliot, uh, the T.S. Eliot and Forward Prizes. Her new books are Lyric Cousins, Musical Form in Poetry, and the collection The Catch and Limestone Country. Please give a big welcome to Fiona Sampson. Thank you, Brenda, and thank you, um, everyone, for just such a wonderful reading. It's just a joy, just a, a wonderful hour and a half. Um, this is a Slovenian poem. I mean a poem set in Slovenia. Dante's Cave, set in Velika Dolina, Scotchen. Finally, I came to the end of the world, to a limestone cliff falling in pale steps and far below a pool somehow out of myth, proving that there was nothing but the rock to hold me up, to raise me into that clear air where crows were looping, where the eye of God was gold and inattentive. Then I saw the end is air and falling. It is clean and lovely. It is blue. And a poem from um, Romania, the bear dancing. Bear like the animal. What is bear? And what is the dancing man inside the bearskin? What sweat and what stink of tallow hang between the man and the old skin he wears, inside which the man dies as bear is reborn? Why does man put on bear? Why raise him again from Darkness, raise doubt out of the dark, and who dances whom when, like a hand dipped 
in a wound, the fear is danced over and over. And finally, Avenue. You wake and find yourself dreaming. You walk an avenue of trees whose canopies stir with the vagueness of dream. It seems as though the time to come must be a wind stirring the leaves, coming from far away in the west where a coast shimmers vaguely with surf, shimmering like leaves their white froth spends itself unimportantly. All this is very far away, and you are very small. The air is deep, and you are far down in its valley, walking the pale dust path, walking against the wind. <laughs>